Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome and thanks for joining me on CBS Eye on Veterans. For ConnectingVets.com, the military news and veteran lifestyle website, I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And today we're talking about the new book, The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy, which is authored by two of America's best-known vets, Marine Corps veteran Dakota Meyer and our next guest, former SEAL Team 6 leader Rob O'Neill. Now, O'Neill has earned his place in history as the man who killed Osama bin Laden during the famous raid in Pakistan. For a brief time, nobody really knew who the trigger man was, only that a team of America's most elite operators, aviators, and intel specialists had found and killed the world's most wanted terrorist. But as details slowly leaked out, internal conflicts brewed among the quiet professional community, rumors and infighting started and books would eventually get published that would all fuel the flames over who really shot Bin Laden in his bedroom. Eventually, O'Neill would step forward and be revealed as the gunman, which put a media target on his back and a price on his head. But over the years, he's moved from the Navy's most elite unit to author and acclaimed public speaker, and he's earned the reputation as a fiery voice on social media whose tweets can either make you laugh or make you mad. But O'Neill doesn't really care. He's always happy to tell you how he really feels. Now, in this latest book, we hear more about what it was like to grow up as a kid in Butte, Montana, who loves to hunt, loves shooting hoops, loved Irish bars, and really surprised everyone by even becoming a SEAL, because he was never really known to be a great swimmer. We also hear many life lessons, 
and the kind of humor you'd expect from a salty sailor and one of America's most elite combat vets. Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill, how are you, sir? Today's a good day. You know, I, uh, I got out of bed, put my feet on the floor, I picked up a newspaper, checked the obituaries. My name wasn't in it. Today's a good day. <laughs> That's awesome. Do we still have newspapers. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you get a newspaper? But that, well, good to have you, man. We are here today to talk about the book, The Way Forward, Mastering Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy, which, uh, we did the interview a couple of weeks back with Dakota, the Medal of Honor recipient, true warrior, Dakota Meyer, and yourself, who almost needs no introduction, Navy SEAL, the Bin Laden raid. All that you guys kind of compiled this book, but what I was expecting to be this like motivational book and each book to be a chapter about like a discipline I need to apply to my life and how I need to wake up every day at 4 a.m. and do push ups and how I need to uh, train harder and run faster and eat less and more broccoli and less Girl Scout cookies. Um, it was like both you guys weave together this patchwork quilt of your life from like, you know, five, six, seven, 10, 11, 12 years old. And it was a trip, man, because I, I, I didn't know that side of you. All I know is the Rob O'Neill from the press and from Twitter and, 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 and just all the things that we see in public. Um, tell me, what did you intend the audience to get from this book before we dive into it? Well, I've known Dakota for a while. We're, we're close. Um, he, um, he and my wife are, pretty much best friends like if they're when they're at first when they were talking i i i'm like what's going on but now i just assume i screwed up and they're figuring out a way to to fix me or whatever um but we we uh you know we, we i was just at his house recently in texas i've been his place in kentucky he's been in my place and all this stuff and and we got together talking about stuff and how uh you know one of my one of my stories that people that sometimes don't believe is that i was never a tough guy and i didn't know how to swim and i was never going to be in the military and i just joined the navy became a seal Long story short, you know, I'm in Bin Laden's bedroom. He was um, he was from Kentucky, you know, um, like raised chickens and was a male cheerleader. And then he's a, <laughs> yes. it's like, yeah, you don't know that. And then then uh, then you know, uh, Ganjagal Valley, Afghanistan. He's killing people with his bare hands, trying to you know pulling bodies out and, and Medal of Honor. Which Dakota will be the first to tell you that he got a medal for the worst day of his life. But then you know, I was going to be a Navy SEAL for 30 years. I should still be in right now. And I was going to retire in Coronado as a master chief instructor with a, one of those big Navy SEAL mustaches and a cigar. That was my plan after that. And, and then all of a sudden we're in the limelight. So Dakota's in the limelight. He's getting a medal around his neck from president Obama. I'm on TV. My name went, came out and, uh, and but the, kind of the premise of the book, the way forward is now what, what do we do next? It doesn't matter where you're from. If you're a CEO of a company, You've had your first day and you've been nervous, but what do you do next? And, and, um, like when people say, well, once a seal, always a seal, I'll say, well, no, I was a seal. I'm not now. I, I mean, I, I was in college. I'm not a college student. I was in high school. I'm not a high school student. But what next? It's like even people in the Navy, like, as you know, in the Navy, you, you can join at 18, retire at 38. You got a 30 year mortgage. What next? What do we do now? What's the way forward? And it's just, it, it's, it's that it's a bunch of stories of how we're all cut from the same cloth. Most of us are the same. You know, we, it doesn't matter where you grow up. It just, it seems, and I've seen it all over the, this country and parts of the world where a lot of people just say, I just got to get out of here. I just got to get out of here. But you, you have this fear of success where people from somewhere else have got to be better than me. I realized that like the first day at Navy boot camp, I got a tough guy from Yonkers, New York. I got a couple of dudes from gangs in, in South Central and Watts. I got some uh, suave dudes from South Florida, but we're all there on the first day of boot camp and we're all nervous. 
what the f- we do now? And so it, the way forward is, is um, you're, you're going to move forward. You don't need to live in the past. You need to learn from the past. And, and here's a hard one for people. If you're holding the grudge, you're weighing yourself down and uh, you're wasting energy and, and you're having that shower fight, man, I sure should have said this. And boy, if I, you know, learn, get over it. My, I think my story starts with me being 32 years old, taking, doing a jump over Butte, Montana with SEAL Team 6 out of a Chinook. And as, as we're doing our route, I'm the jump master, and I can see, you know, my house. And then I can see where I played basketball. Then I see my high school, my college. And then all of a sudden, we're jumping over the freaking golf course. And um, it, it's we started here. How did we get here? Now what do we do? And, and hopefully, you know, there's a lot of life left in us. So that's the way forward. Man, I'm so glad you bring that up. And normally this comes out as it did with Dakota and I towards the end of the interview. Like, don't live in the rearview mirror. But I feel like that's, I don't know, maybe it's just because G-Watt's dragged on for over 20 years. You know, maybe it's because there's guys that have, you know, did the conflict in their 20s and are now in their 40s. But I've always feel like that's a message that needs to get pounded out in 2022 and beyond. Because as we age, I feel as though there's so many people that are just stuck looking in that rearview mirror, reflecting on their best days or their big, high, up-tempo days. And they feel that life just going to Home Depot in the minivan with kids is like unfulfilling. Yet that, dang it, should be the coolest thing you're doing. You you can't continue to measure how cool you are or how great life is or how significant life is by some stuff that happened in your twenties, albeit amazing stuff. I had a dude once, uh, once I'm uh, at, at high school or in, I went home to Butte, Montana. I think I was out of the Navy. He's like, yeah, man, remember that game when we did? I was like, not really. I mean, it was, I'm sure we had a blast. I'm sure that we snuck some, some forties out of the town pump and drank them behind the civic center. Um, but you know, it was fun, but yeah, a quote that my father and I, came up with was I'm as old as I've ever been, but I'm also as young as I'll ever be. <laughs> right on. Let's talk about Butte, Montana. Uh, of course, the book opens up with you guys jumping into it, which we get into a little bit later in the book on a SEAL team exercise where you're training kind of, a, you know, in the off cycle of the uh, deployment. But uh, you open and get deep within the early couple of stories that you read about um, uh, when you shared about the young days and the hunting trip. <clears throat> Oh, yeah. And that, uh, and that hunting trip, interestingly enough, uh, you know, famous warfighter, famous Navy SEAL here. Your first hunting trip, you didn't even have a gun. No, you, I you didn't. Manned the, you manned the cooler, the zingers, and the Cokes. Describe that, a bit about what that yeah. meant with your dad. We started hunting the same reason I joined the Navy, because we got dumped by a girl. Uh, I eventually joined the Navy because I got dumped by a girl and I left town. We started hunting because he, he was in a second divorce. And it's one of those things where uh, divorce is just... Now what? And he's like, you want to go hunting? Because he's like, his brother, Uncle Jack, and my cousin, his son, Corey, all O'Neill's were like, well, we're going to go hunting. We, he, he, Jack had my dad put in for an antelope ta- uh, permit. We did Not only did we not have a gun, we didn't even have a truck. So we went hunting, three of us. All we knew how to do was um, go to the a town pump again, which is a convenience store, and fill up uh, um, a cooler with zingers and with Twinkies. A couple pre-made sandwiches, like coffee, and and then we drove out to um, south of Dillon, Montana, which is you know it's got it's got mountains in the distance, but it's also plains and it's full of antelope, the fastest um, mammal on North America. And so we have no idea what we're doing. We're with a couple of friends, we hop in their truck. The guy driving is as a paraplegic, and and we're driving through a field chasing antelope, and it's going everywhere, and people just spill out, and now they're shooting at these animals that run. They they won't go into trees and they won't jump fences. And I have no idea. I just think, well, they're obviously hunters, so they know what they're doing. 
if I would see, see that as a Navy SEAL range safety officer, I would have been blowing the whistle. Everyone gets a safety violation. Give me your guns type stuff. My dad shot one somehow. We have no idea how to gut an animal. At, we're, you know, we're trying to clean it out. And then we, we go back to the, the Datsun or whatever the car was that we had and pulled out the cooler. And, and uh, we started hunting that way. And that's how it all, you know, that's how our hunting started. You know, we eventually got up to the point where we're killing caribou in Alaska and, and, and um, Kodiak bears, stuff like that. We got good. And it was almost when you get your first kill, you become part of the club. Yeah. Like you, you got one. So you're a hunter now and all that stuff. And, uh, and even with the one that got away, there's, there's a place in Livingston, Montana, where a, a taxidermist engineered a bull elk that he has hanging in his hotel that um, is, is much bigger than the world record, the biggest bull ever killed. He's hanging up here. And you'll have hunters come in and go, yeah, the one I saw today was a little bit bigger than that one. I was like, no, it really wasn't, but good story. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, a couple more bullets I've taken with at the very beginning of the book. Uh, you mentioned one earlier. You weren't a strong swimmer before Buds. In fact, you went yeah. to the local rec center to start swimming laps, thinking you'll just pick it up in a few months. You literally weren't a good swimmer no. less than a year before going to Buds. Well, I figured how hard could it be? Like, I've, I've water skied, so I've been in a lake, but that means treading water with a life jacket on. I didn't know a breaststroke from a doggy paddle. I didn't know anything. I, and I didn't even know how, how hard pull-ups were. I've never done it. Like I, the day that I tried to swim was the day I went to Clark's Park and got on a pull-up bar or monkey bars and I, I could do half of one. I'm like, Oh my God, those are hard. Sometimes in life, it's better to be lucky than good. Uh, there was a guy in Butte, Montana named Mike Driscoll. I went to, uh, high school with him and he ended up swimming at Notre Dame. So he's in the water. So I, I'd go up there you know, 5 a.m. to try to get some water. Like the first time I tried to swim, I, I was by myself, and I'm like, okay, it's 25 yards down, 25 yards back. I will swim a 1,000 yards and, like, gauge it from there. And everything was going fine with my plan until I entered the water, and that's when the problem started. So I'm in there, and I, I, I could barely get 50 yards, and I'm, I'm just spent, like, like the, I'm, like, pumped from, like, lifting because I'm doing it wrong. Um, and I got out, and I'm, I'm like, this, I'm really in a pickle. I already signed the contract, and Driscoll came in, and he, he goes, uh, don't take this the wrong way. I, I love seeing you here. I've just never seen you in the pool before. What gives? And I said, oh, I joined the Navy yesterday, and I'm going to be a SEAL. And he literally goes, not like that. You're not. And he said, get in. I'll show you. And he said, what techniques? And I said, well, I was reading through this. It's called a breaststroke and a side stroke. He said, okay, I'll show you the breaststroke. And he just helped me with it. And then I would work on that. And uh, on this notebook I still have, I was writing down my times to because you had to get a certain, I don't even know what it was, 11 minutes, 30 seconds, something like that. And uh, I just kept my times going down. And I, I thought they were good times because I was pa I was passing the minimum. Uh, they, that's not that good, but I, I did get <laughs> proficient enough to pass the damn test. And I got proficient enough to pass the test in boot camp to know that I'm going to fail the swims in butts. That's basically where we're at. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, again, I took away from that that, like, hey, if you want to start a skill – Go for it. Like, go get some training. Go get some coaching. Go learn a skill. It's not too late. You can still accomplish greatness even if you don't yeah. go into it. You know, <sighs> the biggest stud. You can go into something, a true novice, but <laughs> learn and practice, and that's kind of what I you did. Uh, I know uh, Dave Grohl, who's obviously Dave Grohl, and uh, he, he, what he said, what, I, I don't play an instrument, and I asked how he learned, and he said, you know how you learn to play music? You pick up an instrument and suck, and then get a few friends to get instruments and suck together. And so he's in Nirvana, the Foo Fighters. He's got a couple 737s. He's doing all right. 
Yeah. <laughs> but nobody knows. At one point in time, he was a really bad punk band touring Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, with like Misfits and, he, you know, other bands. I mean, he was so cool, too. He, he was talking about how he would steal music for like Smells Like Teen Spirit, how he stole it from from old school like R&B. And he's like, he's like, I'm here's how humble he's like, I'm like the most basic drummer. I'm like, Dave, you're like the best drummer on the planet. No doubt. Then they got in a fight and we're all at dinner. He got in a, uh, not a fight, but a wrestling match with Tim Montana at the restaurant in New York. And they said a Navy SEAL broke it up. I'm not sure that was me, but it could have been. <laughs> Uh, let me see. Practice, dedication. One of the cool things I thought was good in the beginning of the book is uh, when people ask, you know, how do you become a great Navy SEAL? How do you, you know, how did you train? How did you get the, I don't know, mental focus to be able to do all that stuff? Uh, you said it started with free throws. And I thought this was totally interesting. Yeah. Your dad was a baller and you guys playing basketball. Open that a little bit for me. He's still a baller. He's uh, 73, I think, uh, 74. Anyway. But we um we would shoot free throws. Our our thing was um if you're gonna play in college, you're probably gonna be a two guard because I'm six one, you know, um I'm not fast, I can't dunk, I'm gonna be a two guard. Um and so we would shoot free throws, you gotta be good at free throws. And we needed to make twenty free throws in a row every day we practice before we can leave. Like you're not neither of us is leaving the gym. If if it takes five hours, one of us has to make it in a row. And so what we would do is um, you start on a make, so you, you know your feet are set. But then it's like uh, muscle memory with shooting. And this helped me with shooting later as a Navy SEAL. It's uh, do everything like you do anything. If you want to be good at something, do it a 1,000 times. If you want to be really good, do it 10,000 times. If you want to be great, do it a 100,000 times. So you get your feet set, and it's everything the same way up here, you know, shoot. And then our biggest argument between my dad and me was um, do you look at the ball or do you look at the rim? as you release. And I would always look at the rim because I don't want to move. He would watch the ball. <clears throat> so it was just, it was one, two, three, spin, then a shot, and then boom, and then I'm already set, shot, boom, shot. And uh, it's just learning the mechanics of how to do something right. It's it's with, it's like, it, but it's simple. It's like someone will say, well, I need to get better at pull-ups. How do I do that? It's like, well, you do more pull-ups. That's how you do it. So, um, and we got to a point with free throws every year that we started. So my season would end and that, and my dad, uh, our season would start. And uh, when we started, it's 20, 20 free throws to leave the gym, 20 to get a stake at the Derby. And the Derby is a place in Butte, Montana, amazing stakes. But once we hit the stake goal, the, the leave the gym stayed at 20, but the stake went to 25. And then the stake went to 30, 35, 40. 20 to leave the gym, 55 to get a stake. And we got to a point, my going into my senior year of high school, my dad made 91 free throws in a row, which is awesome. And that was a family record for a week. Because the next uh, Wednesday, I made 105 in a row, which is cool. And that, that's when you just got to get in the zone and you're just doing it like you do it. You're like singing your songs or whatever you're doing in your head. And um, I was not happy when I made 105. I was so pissed when I missed 106. Yeah, because you thought you'd set like a Guinness record at some point or whatever. But I can yeah. see it now. And it's hilarious the way you wrote it. Um, you know, you, this tall, lanky, white, red-headed Irish kid covered in Chicago Bulls gear. I mean, the book's great, man. It's it's like that whole thing, that whole thing. Yeah, Again, that was an era when we all thought we were going to be Michael Jordan. <laughs> Even the white redhead from yeah, man. Montana, man. I was pissed off when when um, when I, I was in high school, like sophomore or whatever. My dad spent the time and money to take all four of us kids and him to Orlando from Montana, which is way up there. To Disney World, I was pissed because it was game one. The Bulls were playing the Lakers, 1991, and they never wanted to. I've been watching them lose the Pistons 
forever. And now they're in the finals. And I'm like, Dad, you got to put us on a plane during game one. He's like, to Disney World. <laughs> and once we got, once we landed, I made a, I made a, the family stopped. And we're not even going out to baggage claim. We're waiting. We're, we're, we're watching the game. And then Sam Perkins hit that three and they're down 0 1. Like, well, this vacation is going to suck. <laughs> then they end up, then they won four straight. <laughs> Eventually, though, after some heartbreak and a woman, you do end up uh, getting off the basketball court, giving up Montana Tech, and you decide to join the Navy. Of course, you practiced swimming. And whenever I interview a SEAL or a Ranger, one of you elite operator guys, I always you know, get the stories from the training. The book delivers that. Um, the drown proofing, the beehive. All the different evolutions inside BUDS and Navy SEAL training, you know, many of us have heard about. It's vicious. You could almost die trying to pass the swim test. With all these training stories that I hear from the operations community, what's the takeaway from my life as a civilian? Because I'll never be pushed to that limit. I will never have to endure something that hard. But what's the takeaway? Because it's beautifully written. The takeaway is how to slow down. Uh, if you want to be, if you want to be fast, slow down. Um, and that panicking will never help you. Uh, rarely will you panic and succeed. And the realization too, that panic is contagious, that if, if you, if you panic, people around you are going to panic. And that's just the way human nature is. Um, <clears throat> my proof lately of that is the great, uh, toilet paper debacle of 2020. And I know why it happened. I mean, any rational person knows that toilet paper is not a survival mechanism. You can get along without it. It might suck and you might do some weird shit. You're going to get clean. But some ass hoarded all the toilet paper one day at Walmart and some other ass watched him. So he sprinted to Target and it, it, it chain reaction of panic. <clears throat> I see, I see people, I get to fly a lot and it's not fun, but I get to see people in airports and, and people are generally on edge. That's why there's no, no time is too early to drink in an airport because people are on edge. And that's where panic, you can, you can watch it. Wait, wait till you, people can't even help it. When they, they announce we'll be boarding in 10 minutes, what does everyone start doing? They start crowding where they, cause they don't want to, they start panicking. Other people panic. When, when someone from zone three goes in front of someone from zone one, a fight will break out because they panic. However, um, like this is a horrible thing to say. <laughs> I almost want to get in a eh, not so serious plane crash just to see how people respond. <laughs> like I guarantee, like those I, the, the the loud business talker guy in first class that has a headphone that's just screaming about business trip. I guarantee you, he does not know how to open the uh, emergency door. I guarantee most people don't know where their uh, their life vest is in the plane because it's just uh, whatever. And then it happens. Everyone will stand there like sheep because panic is contagious. But what I've learned, especially in combat, people can't see what you're feeling inside. If you're freaking out inside, but you portray calm, that is also contagious. Which is something, too, I've learned over interviewing, you know, the operator community over the years, too, um, that there is that sense of internal calm and that especially for the new guys on the team, you're freaking out because this is your first time. You're a meat stick. You're just a new guy. You're brand spanking new. You haven't seen this. And the older guys, the chiefs, the senior chiefs, the E6s that have walked this path before, especially during this global war on terror era where you did join teams that had already deployed once or twice or three times before you even got there. That sense of calm is what you guys really breathed in. You just got it from those other elder team members. Doesn't really matter what you do. You're going to get used to it. it. Things will become natural. Keep that in mind. The time heals everything. 
don't freak out. You will get used to it. And that, that's in anything. Like, uh, even, I mean, we'll get into the Bin Laden raid, but even going up the final set of stairs, I'm just, I'm just tired of thinking about it. Mm, so cool. Early, early deployment days, uh, you cover some of those. The fat Saudi guy at the snatch and go that you did the grab and go was wearing a t-shirt. And I just loved the thing that was printed. He was, uh, obviously a Saudi. When, when you're in Afghanistan, costume guys t- have a tendency to be smaller than other guys. Saudis have a tendency to be bigger guys, right? So if you see a, a Saudi Arab in Afghanistan, he's, he's, he's either there teaching Arabic or he's Al Qaeda, which, and, and even if he's teaching Arabic, that's a cover. This dude's Al Qaeda. There's no other reason to be there. <laughs> And we rolled up on it, and I see this guy, and it's like, all right, this is Al-Qaeda. And, and uh, I was, I don't know, I was going to interrogate him. And, and uh, he's wearing a shirt, and he didn't know what it said. <clears throat> but in English, he had this cheesy T-shirt that said, it's not a beer belly, it's a gas tank for a sex machine. <laughs> so, and that's just like, we're in the, like, this is a guy, but we could have shot it out and killed each other. But uh, th- that's a funny shirt. He, he kind of giggled. I had the interpreter tell him what it said. He, he liked it. <laughs> different, it's a different planner over there. Now, you do dive into a little bit of the Bin Laden raid, which, of course, you covered in The Operator. And that had an entirely different tone, by the way. I was I was taken with from your previous book. The tone of this one was real, like you and me sitting at a bar over a beer and you're telling these stories. And it was a little less dramatic, a little less yeah. emphatic. Um, and we take immense pride in the killing of the terrorist who killed so many Americans and dropped two skyscrapers. We take immense pride in that as Americans. We take immense pride in your service and your part of that mission and the whole damn team's mission, for that matter. But you, in this book, said something I found kind of surprising because it's not as though you don't take pride in the accomplishment, but it had a different resonance with you because of who was in the room. When I wrote The Operator, I, I don't think PTSD was real for me yet because I had been doing that job for so long and everyone I knew had been doing that job, so it was normal. This is normal what we're doing. But the further you get away from it, the more it sinks in that what we were doing was not normal. And the, uh, everything from... uh the realization that even the bad guys aren't aware that they're the bad guys. They think that the good guys, they're righteous and you're the bad guy. Um, and the families are involved in that, and that um, it, most people in combat zones are not combatants. They're just trying to live. That's, it's that simple. What, after I shot Bin Laden um, and moved his wife, his two-year-old son was standing there. And, and I was looking down at the two-year-old son. And as a father, now that I realize it, it's, uh, even then I was like, you know, this kid's got nothing to, to do with this. Um, and, you know, I picked him up and then, uh, put him next to his wife and we did our, we did the thing and left and all that stuff. But now, now it's like, I, I wonder like what conversations did they have? Did he tell his son, don't get into this line of work? I don't know. I don't know what he said. I, I do know after reading the the story that Amal bin Laden wrote is he was saying, bin Laden was saying, they're not here for you. They're here for me. I mean, him, first of all, I'm not justifying it. He's a, he's an, ass. I hate him, but um, I wonder what the conversation was because, you know, he married the three women in the house. So they loved them. And he did have, you know, a couple million followers. They loved them. And you start to wonder what are, what are people saying? You know, just the, the human aspect of like, even with, um, Dakota mentions in the book that he killed a guy with a rock and that's up close. And, uh, he said that that killing that guy has changed his life in a, in a way that he never thought before. It's like that's someone's, you know, his parents are going to miss him. You know, look into someone's eyes and you both know this is it. There's a dude that I killed that I talk about in this book in, in, a, in a room. He was in a bed next to his wife. Uh, and I, I, you know, cause he went for a gun and I'm telling him, don't, don't do that. And I shot him and she saw it. But then I start to think, okay, we don't even know each other. We, we, I just killed him because we were born on different sides of this planet. And 
what if we'd met like five years before at a coffee shop in, in Spain? Would we have laughed? Uh, one of the things that I say in this book that, that really resonates with me is it's a huge planet, but it's a small world. Yeah. And I'm so glad you wrote that because, and I don't want to connect this to something that, that is not necessarily connected, but it feels like it should be to me. And that is when I see people now after two decades of war, I saw, you know, the whole January 6th thing unfold. And I see a lot of people like storming the Capitol with their right, you know, talking about their rights. And then you see in some states with the open carry, the guys all kitted up, you know, ordering a number four at Arby's and they're like meal team six. And, <laughs> and they act like this is just so profoundly cool. And then when I talk to you in Dakota, I realize that there's an element of this job that is not so cool oh. and that will shake you to your core and that. To think about killing a man is one thing, but to have to, to do, do it yeah. is a totally different thing. And I'm glad that you yeah. and Dakota both have brought that forward in this book. So you see it now with um, with what's going on in Ukraine and all these warriors on, well, I would have started that ambush with an RPG. And I'm like, no, you wouldn't. You would have started by your pants. And like Instagram, I didn't know everyone was a war here until I got an Instagram. And, I, and those shirts they'll sell. Me and Dakota, D- Dakota and I bring this up all the time. Yeah, I like to kick in doors and shoot people in the face. And I'll see that. I'm like, no, you don't, because you've never done it. And even the, there's a meme out there with the dude at Disneyland with Mickey Mouse ears. And the shirt says, if something goes down, follow me, lead or get out. It's like, what the is going to happen in the Magic Kingdom, bro? What's, I haven't seen people that kill people that are like, yeah, that was amazing. I'll, I'll do it again. Yeah. You don't know what it's like. I mean, and that's whatever. And I'm not on my high horse, but like, you know, you're not, you're not in uh, Tarawa. You're not, you're not storming the beaches at, you know, Omaha. <laughs> we're in this era of divisive politics and we're in this era where if you're red, you're right. Or if you're blue, you're right. And if you're not, you're wrong. And if you're not, you're an ass. It's crazy how divisive we get. And then you talk about these, uh, the moment there uh, before President Obama addressed the 101st Airborne, and he privately met with the 28 operators that were part of the mission to Abbottabad that killed yeah. bin Laden. Uh, you guys hadn't been named at this point. No one really kind of knew who was who. And, and in fact, other than the divisions you could guess, you know, SEAL Team, Deltas, Rangers, 160th, uh, you didn't really know who was involved in that mission. And so you meet privately with the president. One, tell me about the flag you gave him and how he ended up with two. And yeah. then two, I was taken with the fact that you said when you met Biden in that same room, you were like, he's a cool guy. He's sure, like sure. your fun grandfather. Yes. So share with me a little bit about that day. Yeah, I was, I, you know, we just finished the mission and we're not sure how to handle it. Um, you mentioned some of the other units too. What I love about missions like that, you, you know, 160th was there. That's how cool those dudes are. Okay. They were obviously there. Who are the other guys? Cause 160th, man, they are the most professional group I've ever worked with. Um, but so we're in there and President Obama came in and, you know, and, and we were, you know, we're low key. We were, uh, he came in, that voice came out. Hey, everybody. And it's President Obama. Joe Biden's with him. It's pretty badass. And he's up there. He's going to give us the, uh, Presidential unit citation. We'd, we'd already been awarded silver stars for the mission. And, and, uh, we, what he didn't know was we, a flag that we carried, we into Bin Laden's house, we put it in a frame and then it's not folded up like a shadow box. It's in a frame. And before that, every one of us, including the pilots and the air crew signed the back of it. And he didn't know he was getting it. Uh, so he's up there and then we, 
one of our guys presented it to him and explained what it was. And, and uh, be it President Obama or President Trump or pre- whatever, presidents are never at a loss for words. They Politicians are never at a loss for words. They'll talk and talk. And, so, and Obama especially, amazing speaker, always has been. He doesn't know what to say. And he, he looks at uh, Vice President Biden and said, what do you think about this? Uh, and he said, Mr. President, it's going to look amazing in your um, presidential library. I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure he said F- that that's going to my bedroom, which I thought was awesome. Uh, and then we went up there, you know, we shook hands. We got coins, um, took pictures with them, like individual pictures. But, yeah, Joe Biden came in and and here I like I just met him. And he's I mean. He's he's off the cuff and he's been known for having gas and saying wise guy. But that's kind of the guy I want to hang out with. When I first met Joe Biden, um, I remember thinking, I'm not sure if he had a martini on Air Force One, but I really want to have martinis with this guy. That's my first like we were talking about fishing and and he said he he said something like in Montana. And I said, uh, I said, Mr. Vice President, I guarantee you, if you just find your way to Montana, find my dad, he will take you fly fishing. He invites everybody, he'd love to have you. That was, you know, we talk about divisive politics now and but that was a time when it's like, man, we're finally unified. I mean, most of those seals were conservative, uh, but we're with a liberal president, and we just love each other. And he made the call, and and you know he's got conservatives on his on his uh, in his cabinet. And they all made the call. You don't need to be one side or the other. It, it's like I can think this, and you can think this. Oh, and we can have that martini, and then oh, I agree with you. Oh, I disagree on that. It's like. But I think social media makes everything so close, so fast, but so impersonal. Like we were talking about Twitter earlier. I don't think someone's yelling at me on Twitter. They're yelling at something stupid I said, and they're yelling at their phone at me. It's like you get in person. Most, you know, most people are good. That's again with the way forward. Most most people get along in real life. And some of those meal team six guys, most of them would probably back down if they were in your <laughs> face too. I'm just putting that out yeah, there. I, I get I, along I, with I, the meal team six guys too. It's like, uh, you know, range, the ranges are awesome. And, and they, but they're surprised when I'm not a gun guy. I'm like, they're like, so what do you think of the shave trigger here? And how much of the trigger pull? And what do you do with the barrel? I'm like, all I knew as a seal basically is I would point it that way and it would make this sound and he would fall down. And what you can't see in this podcast is I'm talking to a guy wearing a shirt that says front toward enemy. So maybe yeah. that's like a, that's <laughs> a reminder. It's, 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 um, but that's the keep it simple. That's military for you. They, you know, uh, uh, Claymore mine is a directional anti-personnel mine and we're dumb as <laughs> not just we as veterans, but we as people are dumb. Keep it simple. And the Claymore mine says front toward enemy. And then on the back and my shirt say this too, on the back, it says back. And this is how you face life, front toward, face the enemy. Yeah. Those directions explicitly are for Marines. It's not for us, guys. I mean, <laughs> you, you know that. There's a, um, there's a direction in, in the Claymore that says, don't put in a tree above you, which means someone once put a Claymore mine in a tree above them. That's still C4, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, since we talked about it real quick and you know them kind of on a personal level, was it tough for you to sort of separate your your understanding of presidents, most especially Biden? Was it difficult for you to separate your understanding and, and knowing them as human beings and generally nice men with the way Afghanistan ended and seeing how when given an opportunity to craft a policy and create a strategy, it seemed as though from him on down, everyone jacked it up. Is it hard for you not to get frustrated going, God, that guy's a idiot it is it is um you know when the first president i met was was president uh, bush 
And then I did meet President uh, uh, Obama. I met President Trump, President Biden. And you do sort of see um, there they are people. And uh, if you want to be good, you need to surround yourself with good people and a good team. And you're not going to do much in life without a team. But I did start to realize the like the the military industrial complex and how it works in Washington, D.C. and what lobbyists do. They don't really care about the people. They care about their contract. And then you're seeing it right now with Ukraine. It's like, well, I mean, there are lobbyists right now just salivating at how many javelin missiles their company can make and how much percentage they're going to get. War is big money. And, and, and politicians start war, and it's rarely for the right reasons. It's just to line people's pockets. So I, you know, I think that a decision was made. I think I think President Biden's got people around him that make decisions based on 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 um, emotion instead of reality. I mean, if you're going to make climate change your number one thing for national defense to close down pipelines, eventually someone like Russia or China is going to roll over you. I mean, we had to get out of Afghanistan. That's just there's no other way around. We should have done it a lot earlier. But again, you come back to how much money is someone making? And even I'm convinced with the stuff we left behind, that's because contractors say, oh, we'll make more that's more money that the taxpayer gets to give them. It's, it's all nonsense. And I think that um, in the military, officers, senior enlisted and officers tell their bosses what they want to hear so that they can get promoted. You don't want to give bad news. And that goes all the way up. And then once you get to the, the general officer level, it's p- political, you're going to get appointed. So don't tell them any bad news. Don't, you know, they don't necessarily listen to the person on the ground. And then all of a sudden you have an administration so separated by from reality, well, if, if we can get this pullout, we've been told the Afghans can hold them off. If we're out of Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary, that'd be great for, you know, for the country. Politically, we're out of the war. They're not listening to the people. So they make bad decisions. And a lot of these people that are doing it, they have no idea what they're doing. Just because you got educated in a, in, in a room by a guy who's never been to Kandahar and he knows theory, you might want to talk, talk to the E4 that's on the ground. Mm. And you know who I just recently did an interview with that I absolutely learned a, a, just just a metric ton from, but Stu Scheller, former yeah. Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller, um, man. Yeah, yeah, I've never met him, but I he I mean he proved he's he's the guy you want in charge. Just the descriptions he gave of the jackassery that went around some of these missions and the stupidity and the fact that it was just you know just it was based on pleasing PowerPoint presentations for somebody with stars and bars. That's it. If you're if you're in the military and someone else is carrying your bags, it's time for you to retire. You don't need those little aids and someone taking, you know, have someone take your schedule. But I don't need minute by minutes and carry my bag and conscript. It's like you have wipers, too, like they did in, in coming to America. Um, but but again, too, all you're doing is is you're trying to please the stars and bars. And even at the academies and I look, I love the military and I, I I'll badmouth people here and there, but they do the same to me. So whatever we get over it. But uh, um, right now, I think they they want to teach leadership, but nobody teaches winning. Okay, look, I love leadership, and I and I, I love I love the structure of the military, and, and a lot of a lot of civilian businesses could do great if they brought in more veterans for the structure. But win this thing. How do you win? Stop worrying about their feelings and win. That's it. And feelings. We could just take a whole other oh, tangent there anyway. with how we're governing over feelings and not, not necessarily. I, I, I think everyone owning an electric car and a charging station every 200 yards on the highway is a great dream. But right now, I, that, that feeling isn't solving the economic situation that we have been in. And this is even pre Russia's invasion of Ukraine oh, I know, a I know, yeah. couple of days ago. We, we, we were screwed 
two months ago. It's just everybody was wanting the feeling of it feels good to be doing something, you know, so good I, for them. I would love a car that ran on 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 windmills. I, I wish we had it. Guess yeah. what? I love the planet. You know, I wish the reefs were getting destroyed. I believe in global warming. It's but it, let's figure out what it is. It's not. I'm not an asshole. It's like let's just figure it out. It's almost with the politics too. There's never been money in the in the cure. There's money into the treatment. Like nobody wants to cure climate change. They want to keep treating. Nobody wants to cure the pandemic, but we'll keep, you know, how about Pfizer send some money to, to, to Ukraine? How about they fund some, some missiles or some shit? Yeah, no doubt. Um, and so much to get to. I want to wrap through this just the last couple things because I'll save it for the book. Again, the book we're talking about is The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. It's a combo author uh, tag teamed here by Rob O'Neill, uh, Navy SEAL, and, of course, Medal of Honor recipient Dakota Meyer, uh, Marine Corps warfighting legend. Um, wanted to get to one. I won't ask you about this. But it's just amazing to know that, you know, you got out after 17 years and that there's no pension. I'll let you read more about that. But amazing that you walked with a silver star and no pension, you know, that you just walked 17 years. You're you don't have a pension like the guy that got the guy and the team members. Frankly, all of you all like the 150 and supporting members uh, in the Intel cast should all, I think, be on pensions for life for just having successfully planned, plotted and made that mission happen. But that's another thing. Um, I have a theory be, on that. Yeah. There was a $50 million bounty on bin Laden's head. And obviously we didn't get a penny, but technically it wasn't a military raid. It was a civilian raid. So how about you put that 50 million towards the taxes we are paying now and just call it good. I'm, <laughs> sure not a pension. I'm tired of paying taxes. I'm tired of my fair share. <laughs> Sorry, that's a lot. You're on a roll. I interrupted you. Sorry. No, that's a lot of bar tabs, Rob. That's good, man. I love it. I love it. Um, uh, giving speeches made you nervous. Three glasses of wine, you were yeah. told, was the cure. I'm, I'm picturing, you know, you get out of the Navy and then you're lucky enough to like make some connections and somebody says, Hey, you can give some great speeches. And that's noble. A lot of guys are doing that. Frankly, we need the kind of motivation and the insight that great veterans can provide. But then to hear you, I, I think it was like Orlando or something in the book and you're sweating bullets because you got to go get in front of like 500 yeah. executives or whatever. I'm like, really? Former yeah. Navy SEALs nervous to stand behind a podium oh. and a live mic. You got to figure this. Uh, I never, I'd never taken a course in speaking. Um, I didn't know, do you read the notes or how do you talk to the room? Um, what I was like, I've been in combat, but that was intimate. Am I going to faint? Like, I don't know. I, I'm getting, and, th- and they were, there was 500 to a thousand, but they weren't even, um, they weren't executives. They were pilots. They were captains, all airline captains. And so I called my agent. I'm like, Hey, that, like you mentioned, I was like, I'm, I, I'm on in 15 minutes. What do I do? And she said, uh, Right now, have three glasses of wine, okay? Not two and f- not four, three. And not, like, not full, but like, have, you know, chill out. And, yeah. and because they were captains, um, they were mostly military. So I walked out there, and they introduced me as foreman, and I started getting heckled by, like, Marines that were – and I'm like – I instantly thought, I am in a friendly crowd. This is good. This is good. And then I was able to give my first speech, got over the hump, and it just turned into, it, it turned into actually a career. I, I was – it was going to be a hobby, but the, the speaking thing's awesome. It's great to get out there. And um, like, if people want advice on speaking, it's don't take notes. Don't read to people, have a story, be able to tell it. And, it, and it's, if you forget what you're saying, start talking about something, you know, and they won't even notice. And three glasses of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. In fact, uh, I've remembered that too. Uh, 
throughout my radio career, there's been times when I've gotten on stage to bring on a band or MC an event. And I always had to remind myself that they don't know where I'm supposed to be going with this speech. They have no idea what was on the outline next. So if I skip it, if I miss it, if I, you know, get it right or wrong, the audience doesn't know. You don't, you, you get too nervous for the wrong reasons. So and if you, uh, that's, and if you use a PowerPoint or a keynote, do not put words up there, put pictures or videos. And that'll remind you of stuff that, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I'll, I'll say that. Totally. Um, you unpack the time when you went public and the Esquire article came out about the raid, but you also have to talk about, uh, you know, what it was like in those days and weeks when the story was first coming out. And this is something I think that's new to America. Um, I think in previous decades and certainly eras like World War II and, you know, whatnot, you know, there wasn't electronic media. We didn't get a chance to know who the people were that were fighting wars. We just knew Larry from our hometown. We knew Mr. Right. Jones had served and, and, and we didn't talk about it, but now we're in this whole era. And when you get out, my right. question about the book, as you unpack that, those weeks, um, was first the Esquire article, which where you were on background. They, they just named you as the shooter, but they didn't give your name out. And then your decision sometime after the Esquire article comes out and all of the, you know, all the rumor mill and all the jealousy and all the anger among the team guys now kind of spills out into the public eye and you decide to do the Fox News special, uh, the man who killed bin Laden. What was it between going on background and then going on Fox that made you feel like maybe I should go public? Because that had to be a personal decision. And that's one that does speak to the quiet professional itself, a bold step to say, I'm going to take the narrative on myself and I'm going to out myself. Was there a specific reason behind why you thought that would be safe? The Esquire article was to prove a point that um, some, a lot of guys don't get pensions when they leave and they don't know what to do. It. And I, that's, that was the launch. I, was, I started a foundation to help veterans transition. It was, called, it was called Your Grateful Nation. We No one knew what that meant, so we switched it to Special Operators Transition Foundation. That's why that article came out. And it came out as a um, – just a lot of guys don't know what to do. That was the article. Um, I disagree with some stuff that was put in. I didn't get final edit, whatever. Um, but because that came out, I was working on Capitol Hill at the time, and I was working with some uh, Democrat Congress uh, congressmen and women. And w- Carolyn Maloney, who represents New York, said, well, we should go up and donate something to the 9-11 memorial. I hadn't been there before, but it's uh, chronological. It's, and she's like, it's not a good place, not a happy place, but we should have something at the end for people to see we got justice. So I, I did. I agreed to give my shirt and a flag. I said, I want to do it anonymously, though. <clears throat> I don't want my name anywhere. I'm not trying to take credit team effort, USA and the, and the coalition, the world was attacked that day. Um, and when I brought the shirt to the curator, I didn't know this, <clears throat> but uh, Karen Maloney is a politician. She happened to have a room full of people. When I went in, there's 30 people all lost someone on 9-11. And that was the first time I told the story out loud. And um, just the reaction I got from them seeing the, someone with a real face and a name they can associate with their worst day. They, they always said there was never closure, but this helps with healing. And um, just with the re- response, I was like, you know, if I can help them, I can help a lot of people I've assumed risk before. Um, I'm just going to tell, I'm going to tell the story. And, and um, people already knew anyway. You know, the first thing that anybody asked when they found out Bin Laden was dead was who got him. And they would say, well, don't tell anybody, but, and then that guy'd be at the bar. Hey, don't tell anybody, but it was O'Neill and all this stuff. Of course there's jealousies and there's haters. You could, you could, uh, people are going to complain about, about anything. 
But um, um, I was known as a storyteller, morale, keep, keep it high, tell jokes and whatever. I guess the most common response to who got him, O'Neal, they said, oh, we're never going to hear the end of this. So kind of funny that way, whatever. I wouldn't have suspected it was to provide closure for so many people and, frankly, for so many Americans who maybe didn't even have a personal connection but just felt horrible about everything that had been going on for over a decade. That's- and for you to be able to do that, I guess, yeah, it's it's um. It's interesting to hear that, and I'm glad to have you share that with me because I think a lot of people do need to hear that because as we do mention, you know, we live in the Twitterverse, we live in the Internet age where everyone's a hater, and the second something happens good for somebody, it's easy to hate on it because they don't deserve it or they're a loudmouth redhead or they, you know, whatever. I mean, no, it's, no, it's, no, I believe you, I've heard it. I, I don't really get insulted. I have pretty thick skin. Awesome. <clears throat> awesome, man. Um well, thank you for doing that. There are so many more relatable lessons in this book. Again, The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles, and Create Your Lasting Legacy. What are just a couple core tenets that you hope people walk away from reading this with? Just the reason that, like I said, at first, we're all cut from the same cloth where um, most people are normal. doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. You can do anything. Um, and The Way Forward, one of my favorite questions, someone said, uh, if you can go back in time and get 15-year-old Rob O'Neill any advice, one sentence, what would it be? And my advice was ask her out. Whoever she is, whatever's scaring you, or if you're a girl, whatever, whatever you're interested in, whatever you're scared of, ask them out because they're going to say yes. And if they don't, you didn't lose anything anyway, but what if they do, you know, and that's the way forward. And uh, if something goes bad, learn, get over, it. get over it. When, when we went through SEAL training, they would, they would punish us, SEAL team six training, punish us for mistakes we know we didn't make hammer us and then put us right back in the training to to basically say, we know you didn't screw up, but we punished you for it. Can you get over it? And I tell people in life, whatever it is right now, get over it. And words we need to hear. Uh, before we wrap, I want your thoughts on Ukraine right now. Um, you know, I was joking the other day and I said to my friend, I was like, it was before Putin had moved any troops in over the border and killing started. It was just when they were doing exercises over there and there was like a bunch of State Department people pounding chests and the, the commentators and the news media was convinced the sky was falling. And I said, man, I kind of want some more Cold War because it gave us Rocky. It gave us Red Dawn. It gave us, you know, uh, Van Halen. It gave us the eighties, neon, esprit. I mean, all the Jerbo jeans. I mean, tapes, mixtapes, dubbing tapes, Camaro, Irox Z. I had a mullet. I had all my hair. I mean, I loved the eighties. I thought, let's bring that back. Hip hop was basically invented. Like the Cold War could be cool, but then it turned. Super tragic and super ugly. So pick up there and like, what are your thoughts on what's going on right now? Well, I mean, I, I even said on social media, he's not invading. There's no way he'd invade. And I made the mistake of trying to be logical. Uh, and then he invaded and, um, it's horrifying. I, I, I really, the, the, uh, the world is, is, is behind the, the civilians, the citizens of Ukraine and God bless them for fighting the way they are. Um, I, I think it's sad, a sad state of affairs when it's 2022. And, and, um, someone's invading a, a sovereign nation. It's, it's bizarre that they're fighting like the way they're fighting. I don't think a lot of the Russians want to be there and having experience from, from combat, like you, you know, you watch Instagram, a, a burning helicopter slowly breaking up and falling and people saying, yeah, they shot them down. I'm thinking there are dudes on that helicopter. This ain't cool. None of this is cool. And it's, it's, um, you would think something like this could just unite everyone. Putin's an asshole. He needs to go away. 
Nobody wants a war right there. It's needless. It's just, it's a shame that um, a, a lot of people are dying again because of politicians. The, the political move somewhere, a power move somewhere, and then other people are joining. It's just, I'm not happy at all what's going on. I don't know, you know, after seeing what I've seen, I'm, I don't believe in this is for the greater good. Something shitty is going on. Uh, I don't like it. And it's it, what a shame that these people are caught in the middle. I, I, I stand behind Ukraine. I don't think we need to get involved with troops. I have no problem supplying them until it's over. I mean, they're proving what they can do with javelins and stingers. But having said that, too, we're watching Germany now admit, okay, we are going to get finally going to pay our 2% GDP, which they said they wouldn't be able to until 2031. But Germany's kind of, I mean, if Germany's coming around, it's like, okay, who knows? Like, just a realization you've got a tyrant like Putin in charge. Don't, don't become energy dependent on him. Figure out a way to do it. Be smart. Look, we all, we all don't want the world to end, but we're going to need to figure out a way as allies in NATO to supply ourselves. So strange state of affairs. I didn't predict it. I was wrong. I admit it. Um, hopefully it ends soon. Yeah, no doubt. And you and I both, I literally didn't think that there There's was no any tactical reason to invade them. I thought some chest pounding and keeping them from joining yeah. NATO might be advantageous to Putin because he just doesn't want missiles on his back door. But the fact he took the step to go across the border and now, like you'd said, having seen combat, I saw some images of some soldiers, Russian soldiers on a bridge outside Kiev. And I'm like, those poor sons of bitches died for, they, they died for this. And it ain't even a fight worth dying for. It isn't even like you're liberating the world from evil Ukrainians. They died because their boss is lost his ever loving mind. Lost his mind. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And they don't even want to be there. Mm. So it just, it just sucks. Well, I appreciate it, man. Um, great getting to know you, dude. You're a guy I've followed for three, four years here at ConnectingVets.com and in doing CBSI on veterans. I've always like, man, I'm like, so I've had Jocko on. Now I've had Rob O'Neill. Uh, the next thing I need to do, and I'm committed to doing this because Jocko kind of scares me, but I am committed to doing Jocko this. Jocko scares me, everybody. Is the next time. I mean, he's like literally what I think the face of testosterone I worked, I worked like. with him. For, I worked with him for a long time. We we actually lived in the same apartment together. And you know, he's always been like that. He's always been at the gym at 3.30 in the morning. He's always done that. And, oh, that, yeah, don't, don't think he'll smile. And um, <laughs> I, I love what, like, I, I don't take social media serious. I'm, I'm usually joking. Uh, and uh, people say, yeah, I'm following Jocko and I'm doing these workouts. And I don't take a day off. And I'm like, you're going to die because he's a one percenter and we ain't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to uh, doing this again some other time. Yeah, but over beer, next time you're in the D.C. Oh, yeah, area, yeah. I want person. Yeah. I want to come see you because uh, the references to bars with shamrocks in Butte, Montana is is near and dear to my heart because I'm a kid that, you know, loves going to the Irish pub. First place I went on my fake ID. So um, St. Patrick Day is coming up. Just saying. Good stuff. Rob O'Neill. Uh, the book is great. The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. I appreciate having you on CBSI and Veterans. And I'll talk to you soon. Buddy. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.